0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, visual storytelling at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. My first guest is Nathaniel Silver, the curator of Boston's Apollo, Thomas McKellar, and John Singer Sargent. The Gardner is temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Pending reopening, the museum has extended Boston's Apollo through September. The exhibition examines Sargent works for which McKellar, an elevator attendant at Boston's Hotel Vendôme, modeled. Those works include the Sargent murals in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston as well as drawings. The exhibition also includes historical materials that animate McKellar's life and his engagements with Sargent. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by The Gardener and distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 44 bucks. It's really good, don't miss it. On the second segment, Late Francis Bacon with Alison DeLima Green. But first, Nathaniel Silver, after the break. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth invites you to join us, as usual, on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. for Being There, Revisiting Tuesday Evenings at the Modern, a rebroadcast of past lectures on YouTube. Terry Thornton, Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with an online chat to follow. Visit www.themodern.org for more information. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins Resounding, a career spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals. Installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected. Books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit PulitzerArts.org. And we're back. Nat Silver, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Tyler. It's great to be back with you.
0: Who was Thomas McKellar and how did he and John Singer Sargent happen to meet?
1: Thomas McKellar is one of Boston's great unsung heroes. He was an elevator attendant, veteran, Roxbury resident, and for almost a decade, an artist model working with John Singer Sargent, and at least one other artist in the Boston area, Cyrus Dillon, to create some of the city's most famous monuments, some of its most famous works of public art. The story of how John Singer Sargent and Thomas McKellar met is kind of a, a wild one. In 1916, John Singer Sargent, he came back to Boston to finish up the Boston Public Library murals. And while he was here, he was staying at the city's luxury hotel, the Hotel Vendome where Thomas McKellar was working as the elevator attendant. And the two of them apparently met in the elevator. Sargent had just been asked to take on a new commission to decorate the city's museum of fine arts with a cycle of ceiling murals. So subjects from antiquity, gods and goddesses. And he apparently met McKellar while staying in the hotel where McKellar was working and they met in the elevator and they immediately hit it off, and he asked him to come and kind of model for him, and thus unfolded eight years essentially of working together, both on the MFA murals as well as on the murals at Harvard's Widener Library.
0: So these murals, which of course are are, are are still there, were allegories referring to the arts, to various arts. So. Typically, this was not a subject that would have required a bevy of male nudes, but Sargent's conception of the murals was a little untraditional. How so?
1: The Sargent really inspired cycle for the MFA, so personifications of art and architecture and music, really a celebration of the arts with characters, allegories, with gods and goddesses from antiquity. So you see in the ceiling, for example, Apollo and the muses, Atlas. And as you say, most of these figures are nude, you know, the the heroes and heroines of Mount Olympus, and they're all white, classical white figures. You know, we have to remember that in 1916, this kind of classically inspired mural cycle is not really on the cutting edge of the arts anymore. You know, the armory show has happened in Manhattan and abstract art coming to the United States. In fact, Gardner buys the first Matisse for an American collection a few years before. So what Sargent is creating is 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 something that he values and certainly there there is a the Boston community values it, but it's it's no longer really on the cutting edge. It's it's something a little bit outside of what will soon become the mainstream. And I think it's, that's one of the reasons why, in a way, the the cycle was quickly forgotten. At the time Sargent conceived it, he saw it as a way to leave a posthumous legacy. You know, his he was known as a society portraitist, but those were all private commissions. This was a public commission. And so this would stand the test of time. It would always be in this museum open to the public, Harvard's wider library, although not open to the public, it's a university, so the, 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 the building would remain there for all to see, whereas they all ended up in private collections and meant that his, his the image of his art would not be as publicly displayed as, as he wanted it to be.
0: And there had been some controversy over one of the figures in his, not too far in the distance, Boston Public Library Commission, so perhaps he was thinking of superseding that project or or providing an alternate narrative around his work in Boston?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had had started the Boston Public Library murals over a decade earlier, and he comes back to finish them, and he finds himself mired in controversy when he paints some of the final panels for the ceiling of the Boston Public Library, one of which depicts uh, synagogue as a withered figure and the Jewish community comes out strongly against this mural, and it becomes an issue in local government. Individuals, uh, representatives in government, come out against. It. Sergeant never says much about this. He doesn't contribute to the debates around the Boston Public Library murals. But I think it's it's pretty evident that it it didn't go the way that he was hoping it would. And as you say, he's probably searching for another way. If, if the Boston Public Library murals are not going to leave the legacy that he saw that he wanted to leave, then perhaps the MFA murals would allow him to start again in that way.
0: So he lands upon Thomas McKellar to sit for him and pose for him for a range of, of work in this period. What, what do we know, if anything, about their, their working relationship or their day-to-day relationship?
1: so little is the short answer. You know, in doing the research for this project, we really scoured the archives for traces of Thomas McKellar. Now, as you can imagine, it's easy to find information about John Singer Sargent, public archives, private archives, museums, etc. It's so much harder to find information about the common man, essentially, someone who didn't have a recognized public dimension to their life. You know, we are now trying to give him back that public dimension, Thomas McKellar. But at the time, his contribution was not recognized. But we, we ended up with, with more than we expected. We found material in the Boston Athenaeum Archive, in the Museum of Fine Arts, the Sargent Family Archive, which is coming to the Museum of Fine Arts, thanks to Rich Ormond as well as government archives. So, for example, the census records or draft cards. But all of that to say that it gives us his life dates, it gives us the jobs that he worked in, the the addresses where he lived, but it doesn't really fill in the gaps in the studio uh, of sort of what transpired day to day. Given that the first half of the Museum Murals Commission transpired over about four years, uh, well, actually five, so it's 19... 16 to 1921, forth from Europe. When he was here in Boston, their sessions in the studio must have been fairly intensive. And, you know, there is a letter that survives that in which Sargent asks Thomas McKellar to come to the studio at a certain time and another studio at another time. And we have to imagine there must have been many such letters, but also many verbal arrangements, because if they were seeing each other pretty regularly on a day-to-day basis when he was here in Boston, probably a lot of correspondence wasn't really needed. In 1921, the rotunda opens at the Museum of Fine Arts, and around that time, Sargent made an oil sketch, uh, probably shortly before it opened, for one of the roundels in the ceiling, based on a pose that Thomas McKellar was doing. He ultimately abandons that for the ceiling, but transforms this this large-scale canvas painting into a monumental nude, a portrait of Thomas McKellar. And... It's an amazing portrait from a purely technical point of view. It's incredible and it's it's also in amazing condition, so it really attests to the the skill of uh, Sargent's Sargent's technique at that point in his career. But from the content of this picture, it's such a, a vibrant, sensuous portrait. He's facing uh, Thomas McKeller is facing the viewer kneeling on a table. It must have been a very uncomfortable pose and yet his his face looks up and towards the light as if to suggest something sort of uplifting almost. But there is enormous sensitivity that went into this characterization. And so from this painting alone, it's hard not to imagine that the relationship wasn't closer than just a professional one.
0: Yeah, it's a spectacular picture. Um, McKellar is lit from behind. The pose is astonishing. There's not quite a halo behind his head, but there's kind of a roundel. at the the top of the painting. It's interesting to hear you say that it's in great shape because it is a painting with a really unusual kind of odd gaps filled provenance. The MFA in Boston acquired the painting in, in 1986 and it's in your show and it's addressed at length in the catalog. Is there anything about the provenance of the painting that Kind of jumps out to you as being unusual or as being, you know, as contributing to what we know about its history?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of things about this painting that jump out. I mean, first of all, the sitter is a black man and it's Sargent's only monumental male nude. So it it jumps out immediately for its content. And I think that it must have been recognized even in the time that Sargent made it that this was something unusual. If you look for comparative examples in that period of a monumental black male nude, you don't really find terrific comparative examples. So it stands a little bit on its own. And then it has this this strange history. So Sargent kept the painting within his studio. He kept it for himself. He hung it on the wall of his studio. We know that from people who were in his studio before he died who saw it there until he died in 1925. So clearly it was something, a painting that he valued. It's not as if somebody commissioned him to make this or paid him to do it. So again, the amount of care and sensitivity and time that he poured into it suggests his own personal relationship with the sitter, Thomas McKellar, rather than you know that he was making a lot of money off his painting or something like that. The painting then has a, a for much of its time, the provenance is unknown. When Sargent dies, his executor gives the painting to Billy James. So this is William James's son. So Henry James's nephew. Billy James is a painter. He's one of Sargent's friends. And Billy James had on several occasions lent Sargent a studio when Sargent was working in Boston. Billy James puts the painting on loan to the Museum of Fine Arts for a few years. As far as we're aware, It was never shown during that time. It was probably only in storage. I mean, given the subject matter, it would have been considered shocking
0: at the time. Let me jump in with the years there. So this is 1929 to 32. Correct. So this
1: is a few years after Sargent dies. It, It then comes back to him. And at that point, we don't really know what happens to it. It doesn't turn up until later in the 20th century with David McKibben, Now, David McKibben is also based in Boston. Uh, He was the librarian at the Boston Athenaeum, and he was Sargent's first biographer. He does an exhibition. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. Sargent's Boston, major Sargent exhibition. He doesn't mention this portrait in the exhibition. It's, It's not in the exhibition. He does mention Thomas McKellar's name in the catalog, and it's clear in the catalog of that show that he has met McKellar that he done an interview with McKellar. And that was actually a terrific piece of information for us because we were then able to go and track down those interview notes. And thanks to Richard Ormond, we were able to publish them in the catalog for the first time. But back to the painting. At some point, David McKibben had a painting. It then seems to change hands to Donald Kelly. Donald Kelly also works at the Boston Athenaeum. And while it's at the Athenaeum, Trevor Fairbrother in the early 1980s, so we've jumped now from the 30s right up to the 1980s, Trevor Fairbrother is working on his dissertation in Boston, and it's shown to Trevor in a closet in the basement of the Athenaeum that's used for holding drinks like beer and alcohol, et cetera. So it kind of suggests, I mean, that one appearance of it alone kind of suggests that it was even in the early 1980s, still a painting that could shock that somebody had to keep it in a closet. Both David McKibben and Donald Kelly were gay. and Trevor has said to me that they sh- shared it, or, or excuse me, that Donald shared it with a few male friends of his in his circle, but that otherwise it, it wasn't very well known. There was only one published reproduction of it in the 1950s, and it didn't name the sitter. In 1986, it comes on the market, and Trevor Fairbrother advocates for its acquisition by the MFA. The MFA ultimately buys it, but it's not for another. I think, six or seven years that it finally goes on display at the Museum of Fine Arts for the first time. It goes on display in an exhibition about the nude through history, so from the 19th century to the present.
0: That's that's an amazing story. We'll have an image of the painting on manpodcast.com, of course, and I, I suppose it goes without saying that the painting is still in the MFA's collection. Let's pivot to some of the drawings in the show. Is there a sheet or two that suggests to you why Sargent found McKeller such an important model for these monumental projects?
1: Sure. I think two or three of them really jump out. So I would first point to the studies for Chiron and Achilles in the Rotunda. They're the most dynamic of all the drawings that in this group, that this group of drawings that Sargent gave to Isabella Stewart Gardner before her death in 1924. They depict several poses for the centaur, Chiron, with Achilles on his back. Famous mentor-mentee relationship from antiquity, right? Chiron teaches Achilles his skills as a warrior. And you see McKellar here from behind posing for all of these different iterations. And the, the thing that jumps out is is in the incredibly muscular and expressive back and arms And the kind of dynamism of the poses that Sargent captures really see much of his face because they're looking at him from behind. And ultimately, Sargent turns the figure around in the final painting, and it's much more static. And I think that's a relationship that you often notice between the drawings and the final paintings, that the drawings are so much more vibrant, alive, and dynamic. And then he tends to kind of err on the side of a slightly more conservative outcome. Another one of the drawings that really stood out to me is the drawing that we borrowed from the Museum of Fine Arts. This is not in our collection, this is in their collection. And that's the study for Apollo in classic and romantic art from the rotunda. It's in this drawing that you can see Star's transformation of a young black man into a white god. So you you see at the top right-hand corner he's drawn McKeller's face and shoulders. And then just below, he's drawn the head of a cast of the Apollo Belvedere that was in the MFA's collection. We know he copied from it. And then just to the left, he's reproduced McKellar's shoulders from that first pose, but then replaced his head with that of Apollo. So you're literally seeing that process, the logistics or the mechanics of that process of erasure of McKeller in the service of gods and goddesses that Sargent was seeking. And you know, this is a process that certainly many artists undertook the transformation of a model into a particular figure, into an allegory, or or whatever they needed that model to pose for. You know, this example is particularly striking for several reasons. One, because he was black, and so that was one of the first things that jumped out to me when I saw these drawings. I thought, wait, these are studies for the ceiling, but the man in the drawings is black and all the figures on the ceiling are white. I want to know more about this story. Who is this guy? And two, that, that we actually know a lot about Thomas McKellar. And we were actually able to excavate quite a lot about his life. So we, there, there was a real opportunity here to kind of give him, his, to give him the credit that he deserved for his collaboration with Sargent. And that's not always possible because we don't always know much about models.
0: Did McKellar pose for only the male figures in these murals?
1: No. We know from accounts, contemporary accounts, that he also posed for the female figures, some of the female figures. So McKellar wasn't Sargent's only model in Boston. Sargent did occasionally work with other models, and there were a few female models as well. In fact, two of the drawings in the exhibition depict three female models that he worked with, and, and we know their names from inscriptions on the pages. But both McKellar, in his own testimony, as well as other accounts from the period, named the primary model, the principal model for the ceiling of the Museum of Fine Arts. And that included the female figures as well. So, for example, the muses, he posed for many of their figures. And one of Sargent's biographers details how he would build prosthetic breasts out of cheesecloth and then ask the male Model to wear them, so that he could better envision the female figure while they were posing
0: finally uh, your your catalog essay, and I just want to underscore again that the, the this catalog is fantastic and and just kind of a, a, a remarkable read all the way through, and it's designed in a way that the images and the text just kind of pull you pull you through the book. but your your essay ends with kind of a series of paragraphs, each one kind of more, oh my God, really, than the last. And you note that one of Sargent's last works was a portrait of Harvard President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, a three-namer who, whose three names managed to kind of sum up the history of New England. And it's a project around which a confluence of ironies, to put it mildly, stack up. Why and how did Sargent come to paint Lowell's portrait, especially when he did, really late in in, in sergeant 's life and um and kind of what is what is that pile of ironies
1: so while there there was plenty of testimony that that Thomas Mckellar had modeled for most of the figures in the Museum of Fine Art ceiling, we had no idea that he was also the model for other works of art, and one of the other works of art was a portrait of President Abbott Lawrence Lowell of Harvard University. Now, Lowell was the president of Harvard who commissioned sergeant in 1922 to create two mural panels to decorate the university's Widener Library, so the main library on campus. And the subject of the murals was World War I, so to commemorate Harvard's dead from the war. And Sergeant agreed. He actually finished the project pretty quickly, and McKellar was one of the models who modeled for the soldiers. McKellar himself was a veteran, so in some ways it was... Very appropriate, although you don't actually see McKellar's face again, because all the soldiers are white, and of course, McKellar is black. But he he went he borrowed uniforms from the military facility where he himself had trained for World War I, and we know from his testimony that he was he modeled for that project. Now, it's his testimony in an interview with David McKibben that also told us that he posed the robes for a portrait of of President Lowell that Sargent pitted shortly after finishing the murals. And now that was a huge surprise because, of course, there would have been no way to know that without his testimony. So in, it, shortly after finishing the murals at the end of 1922, a group of uh, friends of Lowell's come together and ask Sargent to do this portrait of Lowell. He initially declines because at that point he's given up portraiture. He's only doing char- charcoals, but they push and push and push and finally he agrees. Over the course of several days, Lowell sits for Sergeant, and Sergeant does his head, and then he he leaves. And then Sergeant asks McKellar to come in and to pose Lowell's graduation ropes, so his official university gowns. What's so tragic about this particular moment, and it's really kind of moment of tragic irony, is that McKellar, this black elevator operator at this Boston's luxury hotel, who's become this artist model for Sargent, is posing the robes for possibly Harvard's most racist president. Lowell became infamous for segregating the freshman dormitories, so excluding black students. He also became infamous for placing a quota on Jews at the university. And for launching investigations into any students who were believed to be homosexual, and the result of the investigation would leave a letter in the student file. So, in the future, if anyone was contacting Harvard for a reference, they they would immediately be informed of this, and thus the career prospect would come to a very quick ending. So, not not a terrific person, and so it's it's a, this real tragic irony that that. McKellar was the one who actually posed for his body in this. He stood in for his body in this portrait. And, you know, just, just to kind of add to that, the portrait is painted by a painter who he himself kind of shrouds his personal life in this deliberate obscurity throughout his entire life. And and so there are all of these layers of kind of identity here and of confluences of history that that sort of gather up around this thinking that I think otherwise we, we wouldn't really be aware of this. So I, you know, this is a, this is a coincidence. There, there are many coincidences in history that, that are tragic or happy. And, but I think it's just a reminder that when we look at Sergeant or when we, you know, or this story, we have to look at it in all of, from all of the points of view, we can't just see the sergeant that we want to see or, or, you know, that we've been trained to see, but we have to see all the imperfections as well. And only that will help us to to kind of tell the whole story.
0: Nat Silver. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Tyler. Great to be with you as always.
0: Support comes from Getty. In Recording Artists, a Getty podcast series, Art historian Helen Moldsworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Yoko Ono, Ava Hesse, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Alice Neal, and Lee Krasner. Rare interviews from the 60s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists, help unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Named a binge-worthy art podcast by the New York Times, you can listen now at getty.edu recordingartists. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon Treasures, a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, K Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. Next up, Alison de Lima Green, who organized the Museum of Fine Arts Houston presentation of Francis Bacon, Late Paintings. The museum is temporarily closed due to the pandemic. Bacon is scheduled to run through May 25th. The exhibition, which was organized by the Pompidou, considers the paintings Bacon made between 1971, as he prepared for a major retrospective at the Grand Palais in Paris, and his death in 1992. The exhibition was curated by Didier Ottinger. The exhibition catalog was published by Thames & Hudson. Amazon has it for $34. Allison DeLima-Green, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be with you. For the purposes of this exhibition, how is late Bacon defined and why?
2: We concentrate the major part of the exhibition on the last two decades of his career from 1971 uh, to 1991 although we have a couple earlier works to sort of set the stage and lay out the major themes. There really was a dividing point, however, in Bacon's career in 1971, one personal and one professional. The professional one is easy to talk about. He was honored by a major retrospective at the Grand Palais in 1971, an exhibition that he looked forward to with enormous anticipation, since for him, being recognized in Paris was being recognized on a far more important international stage than anything that could be offered by the more familiar art community of London. And I think what always happens to mid-career artists or mid-late career artists is when they have that kind of, opportunity. First, they prepare for it with ambitious new work, and they also take stock of what they saw, and it often allows for a kind of retrieval of themes, refinement, and a break and a step forward. So all of that was to be anticipated when he committed to the Grand Palais exhibition. What was not anticipated was a tragedy that fell right before the opening. George Dyer had been Bacon's lover and partner for many years. They had grown estranged in the late 60s, and by the early 70s, their relationship was broken. However, Dyer asked most urgently to come to the Paris opening with Bacon And I think lost in despair, he committed suicide two nights before the vernissage, which then became the great sorrowful topic of Bacon's work for almost a full decade.
0: How did Dyer's suicide manifest itself in Bacon's work?
2: The first thing he did was launch into a series of self-portraits. We open our presentation with a number of these intimate, close-up paintings, some of them just no larger than a sheet of paper, others larger, because, as he said, I have no one else to paint. Dyer had been his muse and subject for many, many years. But more, I think, poignantly for many visitors to the show is the first triptych that Bacon made in the fall immediately after, Dyer's death, a haunting painting that is preserved in the Foundation Beiler in Basel, painted in 1971, called In Memory of George Dyer. And while Bacon often said he wanted to avoid narrative, it is the most straightforward of his narrative paintings, in that the center painting is uh image of Dyer standing in a hallway, a hand raised to a key in the door, and it's very recognizably the hotel where Dyer ended his life. The left panel is an image based on a wrestler of a figure writhing on the floor, uh image that reflects Dyer's own death from barbiturates, and then on the right panel a sort of memorial double portrait of Dyer and a mirror image of it, torso-sized, closely based on photographs of Dyer that had been made in the studio by John Deacon a number of years earlier. John Deacon, the photographer who often worked closely with Francis Bacon photographing his subjects because, as we know, Bacon preferred to work from photographs rather than from a live sitter.
0: There's a second memorial painting, too.
2: Yes. So a year later in 1972, in a painting now in the Tate, Bacon did a second tribute to George Dyer that is much more abstract, much more elusive, and points much more towards new directions that his work was to take. And if the first painting is, you know, wrench from the gut, and a kind of expiation. The second painting is much more meditative. It's a triptych again, larger than the first one. It is now the size that all of Bacon's subsequent large paintings would be, 78 by 58 inches for each panel. And he revisits this image of the writhing figure on the ground, rendered much more abstractly in this instance as the center. On the left, you see Dyer seated in a pose we can recognize from John Deacon's studio portraits. On the right, you see another image of a seated figure, and the body and torso is very much George Dyer's. The face, however, is Francis Bacon's, and this adds a level of ambiguity and slippage in identity and meaning that begins to occupy Bacon more and more in his later works.
0: You mentioned that the Paris retrospective prompted Bacon to look at his own oeuvre again and to begin to think of measuring himself up against the greats within his own oeuvre, sure, but also in in, in art history. Are there any places in which you see that particularly?
2: Yes, and I think... One of the things that we have as the, one of the opening paintings in the show was a painting he created for Paris. It's a 1970 triptych. And it's, again, one of the first large-scale 78 by 58 paintings. And unlike the tragic quality of the earlier work, this celebrates male love with a wonderful frankness. The center image is of two figures loosely based on Edward Mybridge's wrestlers, but any knowing I would recognize that as a male embrace. And then two male figures on swings on either side, which to me is a wonderful sort of metaphor for you know sexual congress. And I think you just see this again and again as... Bacon's work moves forward is that the male sexuality is very explicit. The celebration of the male body is very explicit. That wasn't completely new in his work. He did his first queer coupling in 1955, and a painting that Marlborough Gallery felt was so shocking, they hung it separate from the rest of that year's exhibition, and you could only see it on request. But you see again and again in the later work a revisiting of certain motifs, such as the male nude, but with a kind of surety and assurance one hadn't seen earlier.
0: There were a couple of Bacon Does standards that uh, jumped out to me among works uh, included in the project. One is Bacon starts, well, I don't know about starts, but Bacon looks at bullfights. And, and tries to make them his.
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually, the bullfight imagery came out of his admiration for Picasso and Goya and that need to annex himself to that great tradition. But it was also prompted by his friendship with Michel Laris. And one of the themes that runs through the show is Bacon's literary inclinations. When the exhibition opened in Paris... The title translated into English was Francis Bacon, Books and Painting, and the literary themes were very explicitly laid out in their exhibition, As It Is Ours. Michel Aries was a member of the Surrealists. He had written extensively on the bullfight as the arena of the absolute action, and For Bacon, that resonated profoundly, and you see in the exhibition a 1969 bullfight painting uh, that is one that was collected now in the Musée des Beaux-Arts de Lyon, and you can see the sort of central composition with its arena, the bullfighter, the bull, and a slice of background that shows a mass crowd. And then, of course, in 1991, Francis Bacon's last painting is just the bull. Everything else is eliminated. And I also think, as I was talking about slippages earlier, in the earlier bullfight painting, you never know, is it the bull or the torero that is Bacon's alter ego, or both? Um, At the very end... When you see the 1991 painting, it is the bull standing alone facing the viewer, and I think that does become Bacon's last statement as he's stepping on the stage, aware of his own mortality.
0: Another of the art historical standards he makes his own is the idea of a subject at, I mean, in in art history, her toilette, but... Bacon makes that into a man at his toilet in paintings such as 1989-90s Man at Washbasin Basin or in a triptych of, uh, of a man shaving.
2: Yes, absolutely. And the Wash Basin painting is here in Houston. And I think there are several things that Bacon liked about that. First of all was the, you know, reshaping the classic nude and theme into his own interests. But also I think There's another painting in the exhibition that Bacon once described as one of his most perfect works. It is The Water from a Running Tap from 1982, and it doesn't have a figure in it. You just see the faucet, the water running down, and then one of Bacon's classic space boxes and a largely empty canvas. And I think what he loved about the idea of running water was, on one hand, it's the you know, force of nature. That's what's unruly, that which sprays out. You can also see it in sexual terms. And yet he also loved the structure, the Apollonian, the clarity of the structure of a faucet, a water system, And so I think he was always interested, again, in trying to figure out these kinds of polarities.
0: That reminds me of of a passage in Didier Ottinger's catalog essay in which he notes that David Sylvester, who who carried on a decades-long series of interviews slash conversation with Bacon, that Sylvester at one point asked Bacon if he'd ever wanted to make an abstract painting. And in a number of these late works, whether it's the painting you just cited or, say, paintings that reference sand dunes, Bacon comes pretty close.
2: Yes, although he never wanted to go all the way. You know, he always felt that somehow it had to come back to lived experience. You know, he was very disdainful of artists like Rothko, and it may have been out of sheer competitiveness, of course. But when you look at Blood on a Pavement, uh, one of the late paintings or the street scene with car in a distance, he's essentially making a Rothko with a stacked tiered composition. And if you just take away the orthogonals of street scene, you have yourself a Rothko. Oh, you'd have to cut out the car as well
0: but but you but you kind of barely see the car it's just there fleeting at the right right hand edge
2: yeah and with this sort of film noir you know sort of implication of interrupted narrative which of course no, Rothko would have never used so or the blood on the pavement just in the title reminds you that this is not a neutral abstraction and i think that's where bacon stood very independent from the american avant-garde who could find the sublime in the abstract, not just Rothko, but Newman, Gottlieb, and so many more.
0: We, or at least I, think of Bacon as an unusually dedicated painter of indoor spaces. Is he even more specifically and intently indoors in his subjects in his last two decades?
2: Actually, no, although, you know, often you think of older artists becoming increasingly interior. And yes, there are many, many closed interior scenes in the late works, but the sand dune landscapes and images like that are unusually evident in the late work. He had done a few landscapes early in his career and then didn't touch on the subject again until the 1970s. And of course, for Bacon, the landscape is never a peaceful vista. One painting we were able to add to the exhibition for Houston only is the triptych May-June, 1974, which is actually painted in two campaigns from between 1974 and 1977, which is very, very loosely based on a de Gaulle landscape in the collection of the Tate. And you see this sort of high dune-like prospect with a blue line in the background. But then, of course, as Bacon always does, he makes it strange. The figures sheltered under beach umbrellas are not happy bathers, but writhing forms, again referencing George Dyer. And in the background of the central triptych, painting of the triptych, you see these two sort of like big brother figures, large faces staring out at the scene. And so it is a landscape and it is not a landscape. It is a theatrical stage with references to the land. And if you look at the sand dunes, a lot of them are very biomorphic. And again, most people talk about Bacon in relation to Velasquez, Picasso, Goya. But I think one of the things that is very clear, if you look at the late paintings, is his death to Degas. And uh, there was a Degas landscape show that he saw that included those very dry, crumbly pastels and monotypes where Degas begins to shape the landscape after the human torso. This is something that has been discussed in a lot of recent Degas literature, but something that Bacon picked up on very quickly when he was looking at the paintings himself.
0: Finally, do you think that in these late paintings that Bacon paints bodies as disintegrating or in a state of degeneration more than he had earlier?
2: Yes and no. There's a wonderful late painting in the show that we borrowed from the Manil collection where you see the figure with a hand raised at a key at the door. The title is Study for the Human Body from 1983. And the figure does begin to seem to be disintegrating or turning into a shadow of itself. But there's also a clarity of line that I think Bacon wanted to make clear. You know, Bacon was a self-taught painter. Most people, when we talk about self-taught painters, we think of artists, say, like Thornton Dial, but not artists like Francis Bacon. And yet Bacon had almost no study. He did not learn how to make art the way almost every other contemporary of his, which was the academic training of first learning how to draw, learning how to draw the figure, and all those steps before learning how to paint the figure. This is why we see so little of Bacon's early work. He destroyed the evidence of how he learned how to paint. He only wanted his most polished work to go out into the world. And I would suggest that it's not so much the figure is disappearing, but drawing is appearing in his late work. There's a confidence in his graphical line and his evidence and authority in the late paintings. That, to me, was one of the great revelations of the show.
0: Alison DeLima Green, thanks very much.
2: Thank you. A great pleasure to talk today.